0: All right, let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to gather together to worship you, to praise you, to see your glory, and to uh, receive your grace and to give thanks to you, Lord. We pray that you would bless this sermon. Uh, We pray that you would unite us as a church, that you would give us understanding of your word and understanding Uh, of your plans for the church as a whole and for us as a a small part of that, as a small local church, Lord. We pray that uh, you would give us wisdom and you would draw close to us, and we pray that you'd bless this message, and we thank you for your grace and amen. So today's uh, sermon is titled, Summary Overview of the GCF Vision. Uh, Last week we finished the section on having a victorious eschatology, so this week we're summarizing and wrapping up the whole series. This has been a very long series, so rather than just end it abruptly, I wanted to have a conclusion slash summary message uh, to neatly wrap it up. So today we're just going to be reviewing the five sections of this series. So in this series, I've been trying to explain what the GCF vision is. And our vision as a church is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. So today we're going to look at all five of those aspects, Uh, and as part of this review, we're going to look at just what each one is and why it's important that each one gets restored. But we're not going to go too deep into detail because there's a reason this series has now been 30 parts, if you include today. Anyways, the first thing that we've been looking at that we believe God wants Christians to rediscover and restore is having a biblically complete presentation of the gospel, so what do I mean by having a biblically complete presentation of the gospel? Well, There's a few things uh, that I would include in that. Uh, the first one is including every essential element. You know, there's certain aspects to the gospel. There's certain ingredients to the, a gospel presentation where if you're missing it, you don't have the gospel. If you have a gospel presentation where Christ isn't mentioned, you don't have a gospel presentation. If you have a gospel presentation where sin isn't mentioned, you don't have a gospel presentation. So there's, there's certain um, essential elements to the gospel, and those need to be included in a church's sharing of the gospel. We don't have time to go into deep detail on that, because this is a, a conclusion sermon, but Having a biblically complete presentation of the gospel involves including every element of the gospel. Another thing I would say churches need to do or the church needs to do to have a biblically complete presentation of the gospel is to understand the warnings the Bible gives about false conversion. The Bible does give warnings about false conversion, and we need to understand them if we're going to have a a balanced and biblical presentation of the gospel. Let's look quickly just at one. Let's look at Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Uh, so just to quickly give some details of this, a, a person is a false Christian or a false convert if they believe that they're a Christian, but they haven't truly repented or they haven't truly trusted in Christ. And that's kind of a major problem in America and in the West today. So we need to understand that. We need to think deeply about that as the church in America. Another aspect that churches need to have a biblically complete presentation of the gospel is aiming to make disciples and not just decisions. So you know, in America, we've taken the fast food model and applied it to evangelism for the most of it. And we end up aiming to get people to make decisions. And in my opinion, we produce a lot of false converts because of that. We're not even leading people to make genuine decisions. Uh, Let alone aiming to make disciples. We should be aiming to make disciples in the first place and not just decisions. But hopefully I spelled that right in the PowerPoint. I did not, my bad. but we need to be aiming to make disciples and not just decisions. The last thing I would mention as part of having a biblically complete presentation of the gospel is helping new converts to grow. Jesus told us in the Great Commission to, uh, to make disciples of all nations and to teach them to obey all that he commanded. So if we're not teaching new converts or those who do choose to accept the gospel how to grow, we're not giving them the complete package because part of the good news is growth in Christ. So if we're not telling them how to grow in Christ, we haven't told them all the good news. So why does this need restored? Why is it important that the church has a biblically complete presentation of the gospel? Well, there's two big reasons for that, if it's not already obvious. Number one is we have a lot of false converts. There's a lot of false converts today. And you know, the, the type of presentation of the gospel we have is part of what leads to that or would lead away from that. It's part of what determines whether or not there's a lot of false converts, You know, sadly, a lot of times in the church in America, we're not making sure people actually understand the gospel, and you can't believe in something you don't understand. You have to at least understand it if you're going to believe it. We also, in America, often don't teach people that they need to make Christ Lord. And if we entirely neglect to mention that, it's possible that what people are hearing is a false gospel, not the real gospel. And another way in which we need to get back, well, another reason the way the church presents the gospel has been leading to false converts is because we're not telling people to count the cost of becoming a Christian. But Jesus taught people to count the cost of becoming a Christian. Let's look at Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. all who will see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build a tower and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another Canaan war will not sit down and first deliberate whether or not he is able to meet uh, with 10,000 to meet who comes against him or with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So there's a few things I want to mention about this passage. First off, in the beginning of this passage where Jesus is saying, if a person does not hate such and such, he can't follow me. He is saying by comparison to one's love for Christ. Because Jesus isn't trying to get a group of people who hate themselves. Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself but he also wants us to love your neighbor. So if he really wanted you to hate yourself, but love your neighbor as you love yourself, then he wants you to hate your neighbor? No. This is by comparison, by contrast. But Jesus, when he was evangelizing to people, told people to count the cost, at least quite clearly in this parable. And the, you know, the lesson from the parable is are you thinking about becoming a, a Christian? Realize that becoming a Christian isn't just easy-peasy, lemon-squeezy. It's not all just peace and happiness and no suffering for the rest of your life. It's gonna increase the amount of suffering you have to a degree. And if you're not willing to do that, don't even start. That's what Jesus is telling people at face value. If you're not willing to suffer to be a Christian, if you're not willing to obey God in everything, don't even do it. Like, Jesus is telling people that to their face. Jesus called people to count the cost and to understand what they're getting themselves into before they commit their lives to him. But that's the opposite of what most evangelists do today. And that's part of why we have a lot of false converts. Another reason we need to restore having a biblically complete presentation of the gospel, is because we're producing a lot of baby Christians who aren't growing. And that's mostly because we don't follow up with people, and we, we have a fast food version of church growth that just aims to get people to make a quick decision and pray a sinner's prayer, and then we leave them be and forget about them. And because of that, for the ones who have genuine conversions, we don't, because there's not much follow-up, we're not helping them grow. And then they don't grow much, a lot of times, not all the time. But that's a real issue. So it's very important that churches have a biblically complete presentation of the gospel. This is an aspect of Christianity that needs restored, and it's very important. But the second one we've been focusing on, uh, the second aspect of biblical Christianity we believe needs restored, is being grace-based instead of performance-based, so what do, what do I mean by that? Well, there's two things I would say, two things I guess I would point out what I mean by being grace-based instead of performance-based. The first one uh, is understanding that grace means favor, but also means empowerment. At least that's a necessary part of being grace-based. We need to understand that grace doesn't only mean favor, though it definitely does, but grace also means empowerment. Let's quickly look at a few passages that show that. Let's look at Acts 18, verse 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace believed. Through grace is saying grace empowered them to believe. It's not that grace favored them to believe. Grace empowered them to believe. Because grace isn't just favor, grace is empowerment. A lot of the times in the Bible when You know, the writers of the New Testament use the term grace. They use it to mean some type of empowerment in a practical way. Let's look at Hebrews 13, verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have uh, not benefited those devoted to them. So grace is something that strengthens you. So it's more than just favor. Favor doesn't strengthen you. Biblical grace means empowerment. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. But by the grace of God, or by God's empowerment, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. And lastly, let's look at Hebrews 12, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, that by it many be defiled. So the, the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to Christians. So if grace only meant favor, it'd be really weird to say, see that no Christian among you fails to obtain the favor of God. That, that doesn't fit with the rest of the Bible. When he says, see that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, see that no one fails to obtain the empowerment of God. See that no one fails to rely on God, lest some of you fall into bitterness. And there's several other verses, but we need to move quickly today because we've got a lot to cover. The other thing that I guess I would say is involved in being grace-based instead of performance-based is having an attitude of grace towards ourselves and towards others in every situation. So having an attitude of grace involves not being condemning towards yourselves or others, and not being enabling, because since grace isn't just favor, it's also empowerment, being enabling or telling ourselves or others that we can just lower the standard and don't really have to grow or don't have to obey God, that's an enabling attitude. That's antithetical to grace. That's an anti-grace attitude, because grace is favor and empowerment. And part of having an attitude of grace involves focusing on God's empowerment as well as his forgiveness, rather than focusing on our abilities and our failures. So why is this important? Why is it important that, that Christians have a grace-based view of Christianity? Well, there's a few reasons. I'm going to mention four. Number one, performance-based Christianity dishonors God. Uh, performance-based Christianity brings the focus on our merit, or lack thereof, rather than God's grace. Rather than on God's mercy. It also brings the focus, uh, performance-based Christianity puts our focus on our efforts, or lack thereof, rather than focusing on God's empowerment. So it takes the focus away from God. Whether we feel uh, prideful or condemning towards ourselves, either one of those is a lack of focus on God. It's a focus on ourselves. It's our focus on our merit, or lack thereof, or a focus on our efforts or lack thereof. Another reason we need to be grace-based as Christians is because performance-based Christianity keeps Christians from growing, or it hinders Christians from growing. Performance-based Christianity can be hindersome because it leads to feelings of guilt and condemnation eventually. And feelings of guilt and condemnation, especially if they're like an everyday thing, are terribly hindering and can really keep you from having intimacy with God. Performance performance based Christianity also keeps Christians from growing because it it keeps us from relying on God, which is the, the essential key to growth in the Christian life. Effort is necessary, but supernaturally empowered effort is what leads to growth and success in the Christian life. If you don't have effort, you won't accomplish anything, But if you only have human effort, you won't accomplish much. The Christian life is about using supernaturally empowered effort. Or sanctification is. I shouldn't say the whole Christian life is, but sanctification is about supernaturally empowered effort. Cooperation with God through reliance on God. So because of that, I would say performance-based Christianity keeps Christians from growing. Another reason we need to be grace-based instead of performance-based is because performance-based Christianity hinders the spread of the gospel. It hinders the spread of the gospel because it tends to lead to legalism. It tends to influence Christians to be legalistic, which makes the gospel less attractive, and reasonably so. God's not actually legalistic, but uh, you know, legalistic Christianity is is a pain. It's an annoyance. It's a burden. The apostles responded to the uh, Judaizers by saying, this is unnecessary and burdensome. Performance-based Christianity also spreads, pro- it hinders gospel progress because it hinders us from loving others. When you think really perform- performance-based, it's tempting to just think very uh, condemning towards others. And that hinders the spread of the gospel because Us loving others is part of how the gospel spreads. The last reason I would give of why it's very important that Christians be grace-based instead of performance-based is because performance-based Christianity will eventually lead to pseudo-Christianity. If a person takes the ideas inherent in performance-based Christianity far enough, they will eventually lose the gospel and just be seeking works-based righteousness. And Paul solemnly warned the Galatians about that. Let's look at Galatians 5, verses 2 through 4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So you know, Paul wrote Galatians largely in response to the Judaizers, um, their ideas spreading in the Galatian church, and Paul is saying that if you start to believe that you're saved because of keeping the law, you're probably not a real Christian. So performance-based Christianity, if taken far enough, eventually leads to pseudo-Christianity. So Christians need to be grace-based instead of performance-based, and, uh, and there's some getting back to this that we need to do in the church in America. I mean, it's very easy to fall into a performance-based view, because it's just kind of part of the sin nature. It's, it's really easy to do. But we need to be grace-based instead of performance-based. All right, the third thing we've been looking at in this series that needs restored in the church is being Reformed and charismatic. So there's lots of Reformed Christians and lots of Reformed Christians. There's not a ton of Reformed charismatic Christians, but it it is growing in popularity. Um, But it's important to be Reformed and charismatic. So because this section was so long... For each of these, I've just broken this down into like seven things. And I'm just going to mention what those seven things are and why they're important. Um, So the first one, the first aspect of the seven that I guess I would say is involved in being reformed and charismatic is understanding predestination. Predestination is clearly taught in the Bible. And since it is, we as Christians need to understand it. Let's look at Ephesians 1, verse 11. In him, or in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So Christ predestined us, whatever that means, but, well, you know, it it means something. It doesn't mean nothing. And Christ works all things according to the counsel of his will. So the, Bi- the Bible clearly teaches predestination, and we need to understand it. We need to understand what it is and, and how it should affect our view of God and the gospel. But, you know, so why is it important? Why does it make that much of a difference whether or not Christians understand predestination? I'd give a few reasons for that. First off, it's necessary if we're going to have a logically consistent gospel. And it, it's important that we have a logically consistent gospel. Having a logically consistent presentation of the gospel is helpful for skeptics who already struggle to believe that there could be a loving, all-powerful God in a world filled with evil. That's a very logical struggle. And the denial of predestination doesn't help that any. But that would, yeah. If you want to know more about that, you can check out the sermon that I did on, on our website. The second reason I would say it's important that Christians understand predestination is because it's part of knowing God's heart. You know, how God, what God cares about most, whether it be the free will of humans or his glory, really affects how you're going to view God as a whole. And if we're going to understand God's heart, which is one of the primary reasons we were created, is to know him intimately, we need to come to a conclusion on that. And we need to be certain of that conclusion. But I can tell you with certainty, God does care about his glory more than the free will of people. And, uh, and we need to know that if we want to know God accurately. The third reason I would say it's important that Christians understand predestination is because it, thund- it helps us understand the rest of the scriptures. There are plenty of passages in the Bible that don't make sense until you understand and accept the fact of predestination. Once you accept the reality of predestination, it helps you to understand the Bible better as a whole. So that's the first aspect I would list of being reformed and charismatic. The second one is understanding that there is one people of God. There aren't two peoples of God. There is one people of God. Uh, sadly, the idea that there's two peoples of God is a popular idea within dispensationalism, but it's, it's not true and it's, it's harmful, I would say. Within that, so not only are there not two peoples of God, but we, we need to understand that the church didn't replace Israel. The church did not replace Israel. The true church is the true Israel. It's one people group made up of all who have had saving faith and who do and will have saving faith throughout history, both Jews and Gentiles. Let's look at two passages of scripture that show that real quick. Let's look at Galatians three twenty six through 29. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many... Of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. A number of the Galatian Christians were Gentiles. And Paul is writing to those Gentiles saying, if you have faith in Christ, even though you're a Gentile, you are Abraham's offspring according to promise. Mm -hmm. Paul says that very clearly. There is one people group of God. There's not two. Let's also look at Romans 2 verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So in, in this verse, we kind of see the inverse of what Paul said in Galatians. Not only are you, even if you're a Gentile Christian, a true heir of Abraham, the true um, sons and daughters of the promise. But physical descendants of Abraham who don't have faith in Christ aren't counted in that. They're not the true Israel. Paul says that very explicitly here. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. That is to the point. So why is that important? Why does it make a difference whether or not we understand that there's one people of God and not two? Well, believing that there are two peoples of God can lead us to miss on God's plans. There's two ways that it does that. First, it can can lead us to think that God's promises to Israel don't apply to the church, which can lead us to miss God's promises. But since it's one group, it's always been one group, it's not a replacement, it's one group, God's promises to Israel apply to the church, and we need to understand that. It can also lead us to miss his plans because... Thinking that there's two peoples of God has led a number of people to think that God wants to rebuild the temple and the sacrificial system, and that is a ridiculous idea. It flies in the face of the gospel, and it's an insult to Christ Mm -hmm. to think that God wants to redeem people through sacrifices or bring back the sacrificial system, which was just a foreshadowing of Christ. Such an idea has the potential to lead many Jews away from the faith and cause them to reject the gospel. It's an anti-Christian idea. It's an anti-gospel idea. So it's, it's very important that Christians understand that there's one people of God and not two. The third aspect, I guess I would say, is involved of being reformed and charismatic is placing a high priority on regularly and thoroughly studying God's word. So I'm not going to explain what I mean by that. I mean what that says at face value. So why is that important? Well, theology isn't everything, but if the church is going to be fully equipped, then believers everywhere do need to have good theology. Having bad theology has led in a number of places to a to certain heresies developing. In some sense, every heresy that ever develops um, kind of develops because people didn't know the Bible as well as they could have. If everyone knew the Bible 100%, which, you know, that's a bit of a high goal. That's not going to happen. But if everyone knew everything in the Bible, heresies wouldn't develop. So the better Christians know the Bible, the harder it is for heresies to develop. So it's, it's very important that Christians everywhere know the Bible well and know theology well. It's also important because, again, we were created to know God. And having intimacy with God is one of his biggest desires for you. And even though, you know, they, they commonly say that knowing a person involves more than knowing about them, and that's true, but if you don't know so much as about a person, you don't know them. If I told you that I didn't know where my wife went to school or where she was born or how old she was, you'd think our marriage is in trouble, and you'd be right. <laughs> I should at least know about my wife if I'm going to know my wife. And knowing about her is helpful in knowing her. So knowing about God is helpful in knowing God. Having, uh, Knowing theology well is very helpful for developing intimacy with God. So Christians need to place a high priority on regularly and thoroughly studying God's word. The next aspect I would list that's involved in being reformed and charismatic is receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit and understanding that there is a baptism in the Holy Spirit. So the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a secondary experience with the Holy Spirit that we see multiple times in the book of Acts where a believer becomes even more filled with the Holy Spirit and receives a greater level of anointing. Why is that important? I think that one's pretty obvious. It's biblical and we all need more of the Holy Spirit. If there is a baptism in the Holy Spirit, then by just by implication it's important that we receive it. It's God's will and we all need more of the Holy Spirit. The next aspect or the next thing that I would say is involved in being reformed and charismatic is walking in the gifts of the Spirit. And I'm, I'm kind of particularly talking about the, the gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, discernment of spirits, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, uh, gifts of healings, workings of miracles. Those are very important, and Christians everywhere need to start walking in those as a lifestyle. It makes a big difference uh, for the health of the church throughout the world, whether or not we're walking in that. So, there's a few reasons I would say it's particularly important that Christians everywhere learn to walk in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. First off, the gospel ought to be presented with signs and wonders. Not like every single time, but I think in general, at least every nation, maybe every city, should have a church where signs and wonders do happen, at least occasionally. It's important that the gospel has, is accompanied by signs and wonders. Let's look at First Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. And when I came to you, brothers... You know, a lot of times, gospel presentations in America are very reliant on apologetics, and apologetics are definitely good. Peter Peter tells us to be ready to give a defense for our faith. But there's a real need for the gospel to be accompanied by signs and wonders. Paul had a legitimate concern that if it wasn't, the Corinthians' faith would rest on the wisdom of men and not in the power of God, and Paul didn't want that. And we need to consider, you know, why he cared about that. And if he, should, if he cared about it, we probably should too. We want people's faith to rest in the power of God, not in the wisdom of our arguments. It's good to have good arguments, but it's better that people trust in the power of God. One thing I didn't plan on saying, but I'll throw in here, um, kind of an uh, epistemological idea about the faith So there's some debate within the church about why should a Christian have faith? What should your epistemological reasoning behind it be? But not only in the New Testament is it mentioned that miracles are a valid reason to have faith, but in the Old Testament, the reasoning God gives Israel to have faith is always based on things that actually happened, not just ideas. He always says, your fathers went through this and set up this memorial so that your children know that you went through this. This actually happened. This experience proves the reality. So I would say we see epistemologically, even in the Old Testament, that God wants people's faith to be based in things that happened. not just in theoretical ideas. So it's important that the gospel be accompanied with signs and wonders. The other reason it's important that churches everywhere or that Christians everywhere learn to walk in the gifts of the Spirit is because the gifts of the Spirit are just very, very practically helpful. You know, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, prophecy, that provides actual wisdom for life. The Bible isn't going to tell you who to marry, but the Holy Spirit might, and that would be useful when you're deciding who to marry or who not to marry, when you're thinking about proposing or not proposing. Because the Holy Spirit speaks to individuals about specific situations, but we need to learn to walk in the gifts of the Spirit, to, to receive that more. Healing, healing's a very helpful gift. Fortunately for me, I've had mostly good health my entire life, but having bad health can be very hindersome. But God gives healing as a gift to the church, and that's very practical and very helpful. Deliverance from demons. You know, discernment of spirits leads to deliverance from demons, and discernment of spirits is very practical. It's it's a real pain to have... Uh, an emotional struggle or a physical problem or an addiction that you don't know is being caused by a demon if it is being caused by a demon. And discernment of spirits helps with that. And through the gifts of the spirit we receive encouragement and comfort in hearing God's voice which helps us know him deeper. All the gifts of the spirit are very practical and very helpful in living life in a community that regularly experiences all of them versus living apart from them just makes a huge difference. That's why we as a church have been, you know, that's why I've been speaking on this a lot. We're not there yet. We don't regularly have all the gifts of the Spirit, but we're going to get there and we're going to keep pursuing it, pursuing it till we do get there. The next The thing I would say is involved in being reformed and charismatic is participating in deliverance and spiritual warfare. So fallen angels and evil spirits exist throughout the world, and Christians are called to fight against them through prayer and through casting them out. And that that one's just obviously important because demons are real and they really do hinder people. And if demons are real and really hindering people, then those people need set free. And we need to do something about that. The last aspect I would mention of uh, involved in being reformed and charismatic is having a culture of worship and prayer and fasting. Which All churches should have a culture of worship and prayer and fasting, as well as a culture of Bible study. You know, there's so much power in worship and prayer and fasting. God designed us to be reliant on him. God designed us to need him. That's why prayer is such a big part of the Christian life. God wants us to have to pray. And I don't have time to get into deep detail on that here, but God designed us to rely on him. A culture of worship and prayer and fasting also leads to knowing God deeper and more joy. If every church had a culture of worship and prayer and fasting, that would make a really big difference in every area. So there's lots of strengths in Reformed Christianity and lots of strengths in Charismatic Christianity, but we need both of them. Everyone should have both of them. Not only are there major strengths to each one, but there's balance in having both. You know, there, there are a number of charismatic churches with terrible theology. And, that, and sometimes that leads them to some weary, we, really weird places. And sometimes going to a really weird place that God doesn't want you to be has consequences. There's also lots of Reformed churches that have, apart from their cessationism, great theology, and they're just missing the power of God. And that's a terrible place to be. It's very important to have both. So the, the next section of this series that we had was the, a thing that we think needs restored in the church is a proper understanding of the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. This was also a long section, so I'm going to organize and structure it similarly how I did being Reformed and Charismatic. So what does that involve and why is that important? The first thing I would say it involves is seeing the church as God's main instrument for change in the earth. Why does it matter that we see the church as God's main instrument for change in the earth? Well, for one, because it is, the Bible shows that it is even though we don't have time to get into it. But also it affects how much we work to pursue gospel advancement. If we think that it's not the church's job to pursue the advancement of the gospel, we're not going to pursue the advancement of the gospel. Whether or not we see the church as God's main instrument for change in the earth affects how we're going to, you know, how much we pursue the kingdom of God. It also affects whether or not we pursue gospel advancement alone or with other believers. Because even if a person doesn't see the church as God's main instrument for change in the earth, they might get to the sad place of seeing themselves as God's main instrument for change in the earth. And that that does happen. I mean, not people thinking that happens. But it's very important whether or not Christians work for gospel advancement with other believers versus doing it alone. God doesn't want us to work alone. It's very important to God that we work together for gospel advancement in the church. That's why the church is a people. It's not a group of disjointed individuals. I said that a lot in that section of this series. The church is not a collection of disjointed individuals. The church is a body. That's the exact opposite of a collection of disjointed individuals. And it's that way by God's design. Another aspect of properly understanding the church is seeing the church as a means of grace. What I would say about that... that If a church is a means of grace, it's a place where we can receive actual empowerment, supernatural empowerment from God. And not just a physical place, because the church isn't just a building, but by being in community with others, by being with other Christians, by interacting with other Christians, that's one of the ways that God has designed to give supernatural empowerment to us. You know, we mentioned the gifts of the Spirit earlier, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, that not all the gifts are given to every person. That means if you want the benefit of all the gifts, you have to be involved with other people. You have to be in community. The church isn't just a place to be entertained. It's a people group that God wants to use to empower and equip you for his kingdom purposes. And it's important that we understand that because it affects how we interact with the church. We should be seeking to be empowered and equipped. We need to cooperate with each of God's means of grace. Another thing involved in having a proper understanding of the church is seeing the church as a people with a mission and not just a building. We need to see the church as a people with a mission if we're going to interact with the church how God wants us to. Christians need to have more of an emphasis on being the church than on attending a building. So many Christians in America have a mindset that church is just a Sunday event where you go and hopefully get entertained and hopefully there's some good coffee. But if all we do is see each other on Sunday, then we're we're falling super fall short of what Christ has for us. Jesus' vision for the church isn't confined to having nice Sunday services, though it's good to have nice Sunday services, but Jesus' vision for the church is to be a missional group of people who live life together and live for him throughout the whole week, every week. The church is primarily a people group, and individual local churches happen to own buildings, but that's... That doesn't even have to be the case. So the, the, another aspect I would say is involved in having a proper understanding of the church is understanding God's design for church leadership. Let's look at Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So no matter what your thoughts are on, on church leadership, God clearly designed there to be church leadership. And if God designed there to be leaders in the church, then we need to understand what his design is so that we can cooperate with it. God designed leadership to be part of the church, and he designed certain roles and responsibilities that he's given to leaders. And if we want to walk in obedience to him, we need to, to at least some degree to understand that. We can't follow God's plan for church leadership if we don't know it. So that's why it's important that part of having a proper understanding of the church is to understand God's design for church leadership. But again, we don't have time to get into deep detail on what that actually is because we, we covered that hopefully pretty well earlier in this series. Uh, So another aspect involved in having a proper understanding of the church is understanding the church responsibilities of each Christian. So there are certain responsibilities in the church that are specific to how a Christian interacts with the church that all Christians have. And we need to know them, and we we need to know them if we're going to walk in them. And not only should we know what those responsibilities are, but we should feel the weight of them. We should feel that this is something that God wants me to do, and it's important. If the church is going to fulfill God's vision for it, it's important that every Christian understand their church responsibilities. The last aspect that I would say is involved in having a proper understanding of the church is seeing and treating the church as family. Family. God wants us to really think of the church as our true family and actually treat other believers like we would family members. Let's quickly look at Matthew twelve forty six through 50. While Jesus was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, "'Who is my mother and who are my brothers?' And stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he said, "'Here are my mother and my brothers.'" For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We saw earlier in this series that God wants us to actually think of each other as family and actually treat each other as family. It's not just some nice thing we do when we say, oh, hey there, brother. It's not just, it can't just be lingo. It has to be real. Mm -hmm. So why is that important? Why is it important that that idea gets restored? Well, first off, God wants us to treat each other as family. So it's important because he wants it. But also, it's necessary if the church is going to be as effective as it's supposed to be. If we're going to be effective in reaching the lost, then it's important that we, you know, follow God's design in treating each other as family. Let's look at John 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And also, if we're going to be as effective at serving each other as God wants us to, then it's important that we actually think of each other as family and treat each other as family. So that was the fourth section. And then the last section of this series, or the last thing in this series that we're focusing on, that God wants, I would say that God wants the church to have restored or to rediscover, is having a victorious eschatology. So what do I mean by that? We're number one, not having a pessimistic eschatology. Not holding to the idea that gospel progress is going to get worse and worse and worse until it comes to nothing. And sadly, that idea is very common today. The second thing I would say is that I mean by having a victorious eschatology is expecting God to cause the gospel to make major progress. So why is that important? Well, for one thing, pessimistic eschatology does inevitably hinder the spread of the gospel. If, if a person believes that they're not going to make to be very effective in what they do, then they're not going to put much effort into it, typically. Now, some people who hold... the idea that gospel progress is going to get worse and worse, some of them really love God and fear God, and some of them do put a lot of effort into gospel progress and to expanding the kingdom. But for a number of people, I think it really does practically affect them. And even for the people who, um, who still put lots of efforts into spreading the gospel while believing gospel progress is going to get worse and worse, I think they'd still be more bold if they believed it was going to get better and better. So, pessimistic eschatology hinders the spread of the gospel. It discourages Christians. It demotivates Christians. Why spread the gospel if no one's going to listen to it? Why go out and share if no one cares and persecution's just going to get worse and worse and it's not going to be effective? Another reason I think it's important that the church has a victorious eschatology is because we won't pursue what we don't believe is possible. If God wants Christianity to make major progress all over the world, then Christians need to be pursuing that. But in general, we won't pursue it if we don't believe it can happen. And a lot of Christians have become convinced of the lie that gospel progress can't be made all over the world. Or at least not major progress. It's very important that Christians stop buying into pessimistic eschatology. So those were the five things that we focused on. Those are five major things that we as a church believe God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. But that's not quite the end of the sermon. I want to I say a few more things. I believe God is restoring these things and has been restoring these things. The church may have gotten away from a number of these aspects of Christianity, but God has been causing Christians to rediscover and restore them He's been causing it for centuries, and he's been continuing to cause it. Hopefully, that's like a major thing you see scattered throughout Catherine's church history lectures, is that God is restoring bits of truth here and there and everywhere. Hopefully, that's something you see regularly in Catherine's church history lectures. I think there are many truths that have been at least partially restored in many movements, but since I'm not really a historian, I'm just going to mention some major highlights. The Reformation that started around 1500. The Reformation has led lots of people to have a better understanding of the gospel and of predestination. And it's helped a lot of people to understand grace better. And it's helped there to be more grace-based Christianity. The Reformation also paved the way for a better understanding of the church. And it led to a greater focus on studying God's word. And the outworkings of the Reformation have been continuing to grow since it happened. Also the Pentecostal movement. The Pentecostal movement has led many Christians to rediscover the baptism of the Holy Spirit and to rediscover the gifts of the Holy Spirit and to start walking in deliverance and spiritual warfare. And then that's continued throughout the charismatic movement. The charismatic movement took the advances of the Pentecostal movement and spread them further to more Christians and more churches this rediscovering of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, even though it makes more progress in some years than others, has been continuing ever since the Pentecostal and charismatic movements. So, you know, throughout for a while now, God has been restoring these things, but good progress is being made today. There are things that are happening today. There's good teaching spreading in various places. There's plenty of good a reformed teaching that's getting created and distributed on the internet. There's better and better books about grace-based Christianity that are getting more popular. Paul Tripp has some really great stuff on grace-based Christianity. There's more and more books that explain predestination well that are getting more popular. There's more and more books on the practical aspects of walking in the gifts of the Spirit that are being written, and some of the recent stuff is pretty good. So not only is good teaching spreading, but the Spirit is moving. Just this year, uh, 2023, more at the beginning of the year, but we saw some powerful revivals happening around here. In many colleges throughout the United States, there were powerful worship and prayer revivals. Deliverance is becoming more common. Hopefully you got a chance to see Come Out in Jesus' Name earlier this year, but there's cessationist churches that are discovering deliverance. God is moving. And I would even say that Reformed Charismatic Christianity is becoming more and more popular. I don't have time to go into much detail, but earlier this week I was reading an article from Christianity Today about how Reformed Charismatic Christianity is starting to become more common. It might not be super popular yet, But there are more and more small churches that are Reformed Charismatic than there used to be. And there's more well-known church leaders who are Reformed Charismatic than there used to be. Uh, Sam Storms and his church are just one example. So God is restoring these things. This is making progress. This is happening. God wants the whole church to rediscover these things, and he is causing it to happen. He's been causing it to happen. He is causing it to happen, and he'll continue to cause it to happen. Before we get to our conclusion, I just want to talk about what a difference this will make for the gospel. If all five of these aspects that we've been going through get restored and having them together becomes commonplace, that's going to make a huge difference for the spread of the gospel. We'll have less false Christians because we'll have a truer and better presentation of the gospel. New converts will be getting equipped as part of getting evangelized, and they'll be growing. There will be less legalism and performance Based gospel presentations, which will make the gospel more attractive. Christians will be better at logically defending their faith, and churches everywhere would have a gospel presentation that's backed with signs and wonders. Amen. Christians would be more passionate about steering their lives for the gospel because they'd have a better understanding of the role of the church and their role in the church. More Christians will be more bold for the gospel because there won't be so much of an idea that gospel progress is going to get worse and worse until the world falls apart. Like, if these five things become commonplace together, the gospel is going to start making much quicker progress than it has been. And it's been making good progress, frankly. So in conclusion, the church needs these five things to be restored. Like, these are important God wants them restored. God has been restoring them. The church needs these five things to be restored. God is paving, my second conclusion point is that God is paving the way for this to happen and we need to be praying about how we can be a part of it and we need to be working towards it. Whenever God's doing something, whenever God's um, working or starting a movement, his people should be asking what he's doing and how they can be a part of it. We should be praying towards this and we should be working towards this. And the last point of my conclusion is that seeing this restoration become a movement and seeing that happen has been one of GCF's most central goals ever since it was founded. And it's going to continue to be one of our most central goals until it happens. So let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for what you're doing in the church and in the world and how you are making progress redeeming sinners. We thank you that uh, you have great and amazing plans to glorify yourself and to bless your people. We pray that you'd help us to seek you passionately and humbly. And we pray that you'd use us um, and that you would draw us closer to yourself. And we thank you for your grace and amen. All right, so for today's communion meditation, let's turn to Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul's talking about the nation of Israel here. My desire and prayer is that they be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I want to focus on verse 3. So verse 3 says, Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. By seeking righteousness that isn't based on faith in Christ, by seeking righteousness that's earned through obedience... They were being disobedient to God, and they missed out on righteousness entirely. Because the only way a person can be righteous before God is by grace. It's by receiving the gift of Christ, and we receive it through faith. Like we saw earlier in Galatians, if anyone is seeking to be righteous by what they do, they're not righteous before God. And Christ's righteousness doesn't apply to them. The only way we can be righteous before God is through faith in Christ. And God gives us that gift freely. So let's praise him as we come to the table.